Several weeks ago, I preached in this very room and y'all weren't here. It was Easter Sunday, strangest single Sunday of my life, I think, was preaching on Easter Sunday uh, to nobody but imaginary people that I was trying to conjure up in my mind. There wasn't anybody in those seats. And so, uh, what I thought we'd do today is have Easter in September. That'd be all right with everybody? And the reason that we're going to do that is twofold. One, because it's always the right time to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And heaven help us if uh, we convince ourselves that the only time we need to celebrate the resurrection is one Sunday out of 52 every year. In a very real sense, we all celebrate it every day of every year and uh, because it is the source of our hope. So we want to do it uh, for that reason. But a second reason is because it's where we are today in our study of the major tenets of our faith uh, as uh, structured in a confession of faith that we're using as our guideline in this uh, series of messages. And that structure, of course, is the historic document known as the Apostles' Creed. We are in the section on Jesus Christ of the Apostles' Creed, the largest section, the longest section of the Apostles' Creed <clears throat> is, doing, uh, is referencing Jesus and communicating to us what about Jesus is the most important to our faith. And so here's what it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified died and was buried. In case you hadn't heard, he descended to the dead. And on the third day, he what? Rose again. And that last line, brothers and sisters, is a game changer. On the third day, he rose again, counting as the ancient Jews, of course, counted with all days inclusive being a part of the day. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, three days. On the third day, Sunday morning, Christ rose again. Just a critical game changer. You know why? Because if that never happens, if that line is not in the creed because that event never happened, then we are left without hope. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if in this life only we have hope in Jesus, We are of all men the most to be pitied because apart from the resurrection, everything else about our faith becomes meaningless. If the resurrection never happened, then really when you think about it, nothing that Jesus ever said or did really matters. But if the resurrection did happen, then can I make a statement this morning? If the resurrection really did happen, then nothing else but Jesus really matters. You have to do business with Jesus Christ if indeed the resurrection is true. Now, I'm just going to take one message to talk about the resurrection. Of course, a lot of different directions that preachers can go and could go in a topical message about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I'd like to do today is try to be a little bit theological and a little bit practical at the same time. What I'm not going to do this morning is try to defend or to prove the uh, historical nature of the resurrection. I'm just going to assume it because the Bible assumes it. It assumes that it happens. 
There is a multiplicity of evidence that can be brought to bear in a court of law if you're trying to prove the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I like to think that I could convince a jury of my peers of the historicity of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes again to the Corinthians there in that same 1 Corinthians 15, a passage that we've looked at two or three times over the last several Sundays. But it's important because it becomes the heart and soul of the gospel. And every line of it is included somewhere as a critical element of our faith throughout the Apostles' Creed. Paul says, for I delivered unto you that which is of first importance, primary, that Christ Jesus died uh, for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then notice what he says in verse 5, and that He appeared to Cephas. Now, who was Cephas? Say it out loud. Peter, that's right. Then to the twelve, the twelve original disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive at the time Paul was writing this, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely or abnormally or unusually born, he appeared also to me. Paul's just saying there that he was an apostle just like the original 12, though he came to know and view the risen Christ in a different way than the original 12 did. He was abnormally or unusually uh, brought into the fold as an apostle, but he sure enough was one because he claimed to have seen and spent much time with the risen Lord. What a dramatic appearance that was to the Apostle Paul. I mean, when the Lord Jesus, the risen Christ, showed up to Paul for the first time, y'all remember that story in Acts chapter 9 when Paul was chained? Man, he just totally radically transformed and changed the total direction of that man's life. Totally changed. You know, did you know that Christ is still in the business of changing the direction of the lives of men and women who are lost and want to find eternal life? Totally changed it. Paul was a murdering zealot. In fact, he wasn't even known as Paul then, Saul of Tarsus. Everybody in Jerusalem would have known who he was. And when Jesus showed up to him, appearing to him in resurrected form, he took the murdering zealot, Saul of Tarsus, transformed his life, turned him into a preaching machine who turned the whole world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ, a preaching machine known as the Apostle Paul. And let me just say this morning, Paul saw the risen Lord and Paul responded to the risen Lord and the end result was life change and how you respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ when the resurrected Christ appears to you inside of you, confronting your life and your heart with the reality of your lostness and your sin, how you respond to the resurrected Lord when He appears to you is just as important now as it was to Paul then. In fact, how you respond to the risen Christ determines the rest of where you spend eternity and how you spend eternity. So today, let me just begin by reminding you of three things that the resurrection, first of all, communicates about <clears throat> Jesus Christ. And then we'll conclude with three things that the resurrection communicates 
about you and about me. First, take, let's take a look at what the resurrection communicates to us about Jesus. First of all, the resurrection is important because it validates the claims of Jesus. I don't have to remind you that Jesus was a very controversial figure. He was controversial in his day. Jesus is controversial to this very day. In fact, he's probably the most controversial figure who ever walked and talked on planet Earth. And what made him controversial, both during his time as well as during our days, were the things that he said. What made Jesus controversial were all those claims that he made about himself. He said things like, I and the Father are one. You remember that? And by saying that, he made himself equal with God. Well, that's bound to get people setting up straight and listen attentively when someone claims an identity with the creator God of heaven and earth, pretty dramatic claim. Same Jesus said, if I and I alone be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Well, that sounds like just a pretty boastful thing to be able to say. You make my name great, lift up my name, and I will draw all men unto me. Sounds really boastful, unless, of course, it's true, right? Jesus said, no one comes to the Father, you finish the sentence, except through me. Now, that's probably the one statement that tends to be more alienating to more people, the one statement Jesus made than any other thing that he ever said, because that's his way of saying, I'm the only way to get to heaven. <laughs> it's just a pretty dramatic claim. You can't get to heaven except by me. Remember what Peter said? We've looked at the last two or three Sundays, that Christ suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God. And so that's the whole purpose of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to provide a personal escort for lost humanity who would trust the work and the claims of Jesus Christ so that he and he alone might bring men and women, boys and girls to eternal life and forever life with God the Father. Man, anybody else says things like Jesus said and they're branded as maniacal, crazy in this life. A lot of people try to make Jesus into something that he never claimed to be. We've talked about this many times through the years. A lot of people say, oh, I love Jesus. He's a great teacher. But Jesus never claimed to be a great teacher. A lot of people say Jesus was a great religious leader. Well, he never claimed to be a great religious leader. A lot of people say Jesus was a great social reformer, tried to reform the political system of his day. Well, those are things that Jesus never claimed for himself. And by the way, I don't think someone who was merely a good teacher could say the kinds of things that Jesus said and never get away with it completely. I mean, we've got a lot of good teachers in this church. My daughter's one of them. And I love my daughter if I hadn't told you lately. But I'd have a long chat with her if a superintendent of Escambia County Schools called me and told me that Whitney got up on the desk and told kids that they couldn't have a relationship with God unless they came through her to get it. And I'm sure parents would be making lots of phone calls. We wouldn't say that that was a good teacher. We'd say that that was a Looney Tune teacher, I think. And so we have to be careful because what we want to do is we want to fashion a Jesus of our own making. And the reality is you have to do business with Jesus. All of humanity has to do business with Jesus 
not based on the Jesus that we craft in our own mind and with our own understanding, but we have to do business with Jesus based on the claims that our Lord made about himself. And the thing about the, re <clears throat> the resurrection is that the resurrection validates all those claims that Jesus made. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, then we take this Jesus who made these boastful claims and we relegate him to the ash heap of all of the other great leaders or the, all of the uh, notorious leaders of human history who made boastful claims about themselves only to have been proven false. But the resurrection's a game changer because one of the things it does is it proves that Jesus was who he said he was. Speaking of great leaders, where is a great leader like Muhammad today? Anybody know where Muhammad is? He's dead, very dead, that's right. Where is Buddha today? He's dead, right? Where is Joseph Smith today, the founder of the Mormon religion? Well, he's very dead, isn't that right? Confucius, where is Confucius? He's dead today. All these great religious leaders are all dead. Their followers know that they're dead. None of their followers were ever, would ever claim that they came back to life after they, dead. Uh, they were dead. They never try to argue otherwise. Only Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh, and only Jesus proved it was true by rising from the dead. And so this is the first re reason that the resurrection of Jesus really does matter, because the resurrection validates the claims that Jesus made about his own identity and what he himself alone could do for lost, wayward human lives. A second thing about the resurrection as it relates to Jesus is that it affirms the power of Jesus. It affirms the power of Jesus. Look with me this morning at John 10 and verse 17. Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may what? Take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Now, Jesus <clears throat> uses the word authority twice there. So that's an important word. The word authority implies power, strength, because he was God, because that's who he claimed to be. It stands to reason that Jesus, if he is God, possesses the very power of God. And we believe that's true. And so Jesus makes it clear, let me get one thing straight, because of who I am and because of the authority and the power that I possess, there is no human being on the face of the earth that can take my life if I don't want it taken. So nobody took the life of Jesus. He makes very clear here in John 10, that he voluntarily lays down his life for those who would be saved. He voluntarily gives his life for the many. And he has at the same time power to take that same life up again, to raise himself up from the dead, as it were. That's his way of saying, here's the deal. There's no force. There's no person. There's no power that could keep me in the tomb if I want to come out of the tomb. You'll remember, of course, based on what we've already talked about, that the Romans executed Jesus in the worst kind of way. They put him in a tomb. They crucified him. He was embalmed. He was rolled up in cloths. 
Once they put him in a cut rock tomb, they rolled a stone in front of it. They then sealed the stone. They then posted guards round the clock there. And one thing we find is that because of the power of Jesus, all of those things were exercises in futility. I mean, unbeknownst to all of these people that think that they're finally ridding themselves of this pesky religious preacher from Galilee, they found soon enough that they were trying to stop the inevitable. They couldn't anymore try to stop Jesus and kill Jesus and force Jesus than tries we might, we try to stop a volcano from blowing when that volcano is ready to blow, or to try to stop a hurricane when that hurricane gets into open waters. And those waters seem to be boiling and roiling right now, don't they? Don't you wish there was some way you could just get a fleet of American defense aircraft and drop something down in those clouds just to make them disperse? But the power is too great. You can't do it. The same is true with Jesus. We have a Lord who possessed and still possesses the very power of heaven itself, and that included the power to take his life up again after he had laid it down. So the resurrection affirms the power of Jesus. It affirms his power to give life. It affirms his power to heal brokenness. It affirms his power to conquer every fear of your life. It affirms his power to one day raise you from the dead. I'm just saying this morning that whatever it is that you're going through in life, our Lord Jesus has the power to provide a touch to your life that can comfort you, encourage you, heal you in every kind of respect. And that would not be true if he simply was killed and stayed dead. But because of the resurrection, Jesus Christ has the power to do everything that he's promised to do in your life and mine. And speaking of promises, that takes us to a third thing about the resurrection as it relates to Jesus, and that is that the resurrection affirms the promises of Jesus. You all know that we serve a Savior who has made what the Bible calls great and precious promises to everyone who follows him. I love the promises of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are going to be many times in your life where the only thing that you have to hold on to are the very promises that came from the lips of our Lord himself. That'll be the only thing that gives you courage to face life. It'll be the only thing that gives you the strength to make it through the other day. The ability to trust Jesus Christ to do everything that he says he's capable of doing in your life and mine. The resurrection means Jesus can be trusted. Look at Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And taking the 12 again, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will what? Would you say it out loud, please? After three days, he will rise. Now, this is one of the occasional predictions that you find Jesus making to his disciples about what was going to happen to them as they entered Jerusalem in the final week in his life. 
Usually in the, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark especially, and also in Luke, there's about three times in each gospel that Jesus makes predictions similar to these. These are so-called summary statements where Jesus summarizes as they're along the road to Jerusalem, particularly in the last few months of Jesus' ministry on the earth. Jesus begins to communicate to his disciples the reality of his passion and the reality of his suffering and the reality of the totality of the gospel, that bad things are going to happen, but those bad things are inevitably going to be followed by one really good earth-shattering, heaven-shattering event called the resurrection. And so he's trying to prepare them. They're not understanding. They're confused. But the most significant thing that Jesus is trying to convey to them in the midst of all of this discussion about death and suffering with the disciples before Jesus was crucified, they never dealt well with that discussion. It was almost as if they're constantly trying to change the subject whenever Jesus got onto it. But the most significant thing that he teaches them in the face of all of that difficulty is that after three days, he would rise. And of course, the gospel accounts are very clear, all four of them. That's exactly what he did. Do you remember when the two women named Mary went to the tomb uh, early on the first day of the week? And their purpose, of course, was to um, tend to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they go. Maybe there's a glimmer of orange on the horizon as the sun's preparing to come up, and they go. And when they get to the tomb, they find the stone had been rolled away, and those two Marys get there, and the only thing they found was what? They found an angel just kind of sitting there. And then the angel opens up his mouth and he begins to speak to them here in Matthew 28. Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. And then this great and majestic phrase, he, say it together with me, he is not here. Say it again. He is not here. He is risen. And then watch this. He is risen just as he, what? Promised. That's right. Just as he had said he would do. Just as he had promised. In passages like the one we just read in Mark 10, to those who were extremely close to them, things are going to get bad, they're going to get bloody, and they're going to be uh, almost impossible to bear. But fear not. For on the third day, I will rise. And that's exactly what he did. And if he doesn't do that, if he doesn't rise from the dead, what happens? Christ is proven to be a fraud. And our faith crumbles like a stack of cards. It's over. The entire three-year public ministry of Jesus is reduced to nothing more than a chapter out of the Barnum and Bailey Circus. That's all in the world it is. This is why the resurrection is critical, not only for our faith, not only for our eternity, but it's critical as a matter of integrity for Jesus himself. Because one of the things it does is it confirms that our Lord can be trusted to do exactly what he tells us to do. It reminds us that whenever God tells us that God is going to do something, God can be trusted to do it. You can take God's word 
to the bank. I love Proverbs 30 and verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Take that one to the bank. I mean, when God says that he has the power to calm your fears, God has the power to do it. When God says, I can supply all your need according to, your, to my riches and glory, God has the power to do it. Whether it be about God responding to your prayers or God never leaving you behind, never turning his back on you, never leaving you nor forsaking you, God has the power to do it. Every word of God proves true and is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Jesus does what he promises to do. So much more I could say on this subject, but these are just a few things that the resurrection communicates about the person of Jesus Christ and about what he can do for you and me. But what about you and me? What does the resurrection say and what does it teach to all of us here this morning personally? Well, again, a whole lot I could say about this, but let me just kind of summarize for us this morning with three simple statements. First of all, the resurrection means that my past can be forgiven. Amen. And for some of us, this may be the most important thing that I say all day because it's real easy to just keep living in the past. As has often been said, there's so many of us that wake up every day and we're like a, a bunch of junkies. We can't get through the day without rewinding the videotape and living the past over and over and over and over again. When the Bible clearly says that in Christ, we've been set free from our past forever and ever, and that our sins in Jesus Christ have been removed as far as east is from the west. East and west never touch. Never, never, never. How many of you wish that life came outfitted with one of those do-over buttons, restart button? You do something stupid, do something bad, just keep that thing on your desk, keep it on the dash of your car, pop that thing till it honks. And life just magically goes back and you didn't do what you just did so that you can live clean and, and pure. <clears throat> well, here's what's beautiful about the resurrection. The resurrection is the power to change your life. Christ has the power to change your life. You don't have the power to change your life, but Jesus does, which is really important because <clears throat> we've all made decisions and we've all done things that we wish we hadn't. And I deal with so many people and have through the years. Their life is just constantly lived in regret, man. They're nothing but a country music song played over and over and over again, ad infinitum. And it just ruins life today. If you keep importing the past into today. And so many people are like that. They feel like they've got to, you know, they go into like a hockey metaphor. They go and have to sit in the penalty box and they never get out of the penalty box. Even the best hockey players only have to stay in there a couple, three minutes, man. And then they get back on the ice and they keep going, keep fighting. Some of us never get out of the penalty box. Let me just give you a couple of scriptures might ease that burden this morning. The first is the great statement in Colossians 2, beginning in verse 13, where the apostle Paul says, and you, talking to Christian people, and you who were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your faith, you, God made what? Alive, together with him, having forgiven us. How much of our trespasses? Say it out loud. All our trespasses. 
By what? Canceling the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If y'all are taking notes this morning, circle the word all and circle the word canceling. Because that's what Christ has done. Once you surrender your life to him in faith, that's what he died to provide. And his resurrection affirms that that can be a reality in your life. Whenever you trust Christ to save you, God takes all the sin of your life, all of it, past, present, even the future sins that you haven't even committed yet. He takes all of it and he nails it supernaturally to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. He paid for all your sin. He paid for all your guilt. He paid for all the garbage of your life, which means you don't have to pay for it. He's already paid for it. I paid a few bills this weekend. And man, I'm telling you, once I pay those bills, I don't think about them anymore. I don't even like to think about bills. I pay it and forget it. And that's what God wants you to do with the sin of your life because he's already forgotten it. He forgets it. As far as it hanging over your head, punitively, it doesn't anymore. He removes it. It doesn't count anymore. And you're now free to live in Jesus Christ and to move past it. If you were like me, you grew up uh, playing with an Etch-A-Sketch. How many of you remember Etch-A-Sketches? They still make Etch-A-Sketches, you know? You can get on that thing, just turn the knobs, and you can draw all kinds of gobbledygook. And most kids in there, you know, it's gobbledygook. And some of you, that's your life. Your past is just a bunch of gobbledygook. But the beautiful thing about an Etch-A-Sketch is, once you get tired of looking at the gobbledygook, you just turn it over and give it a good shake. And when you turn it back over, what do you got? Plain slate, that's right. You can start all over again. And this is true with life. Christ came out of that tomb to give you the opportunity to begin life all over again. Again, he died to provide it, and the resurrection is what guarantees that it can happen for those who believe. How about Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no what? Condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what no condemnation means? No judgment. Christ took the judgment for you. Now, all believers will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ, no question, but not for sin, not for your past. That's already been taken care of in Jesus Christ. And so, for those of us walking with the Lord, this is one of the greatest promises of the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The resurrection means my past can be forgiven. Secondly, the resurrection means for us that our problems can be managed. How many of you have problems? Anybody, anybody in here today dealing with a problem of some kind? Yeah, there's a bunch of liars in the house this morning. <laughs> we all deal with, well, here's the thing. You may, maybe you're totally truthful. No, not today. I'm not dealing with a problem. Well, buckle up, big boy, because tomorrow's coming. If you're living in a broken world, you're going to be managing problems until you're face-to-face in the presence of the Lord. Because all of us have dealt with a problem. We are dealing with the problem. We'll be dealing with the problem that we just can't manage. There will be times in your life where you'll be confronted with an issue, a situation in your life, and you're not going to be able to solve it by sitting down and taking out your checkbook. Money's not going to help. Then what are you going to do? And see, the practicality of the resurrection is it means now with Christ living in me, 
He came out of that tomb in order to move into me by faith. And with Christ in me, even though I'm going to face issues almost on a daily basis, either issues or people that are a great challenge to me and I can't figure it out and I don't know how to handle it, but the good news of the resurrection is even though I can't, Christ can. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. This is the blessing of a risen Savior and of a living Lord. The Bible says in 1 John 2, 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Circle that word advocate in your notes. We have an advocate with Jesus Christ. See, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, Jesus doesn't ascend to heaven. Heath Wilson will be talking about that next week in next Sunday's message. If Jesus doesn't ascend to heaven, Jesus doesn't take his place on a throne at the right hand of God. Jesus doesn't take his place on the throne at the right hand of God. We have no heavenly high priest. We have no one to intercede for us. And this is why the resurrection is critical. I love how the writer to the Hebrews punctuates it in Hebrews 8 and verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The, registra- uh, the registration. The resurrection is critical because it gives you registration in heaven. That's right. That's right. I just made that up. Smooth. And because we're not registered in heaven at the throne... We have a risen high priest who is advocating in the presence of Almighty God the Father our very best. And it's from that stage that we'll find out that Jesus one day will come again. But he's there to minister to his people in all of life's ups and downs. And he gives us power to face all that life throws at us and respond to it in a godly way. All things are possible to him who has faith. Isn't that right? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Translation, I can handle any and every problem. I can handle any and every situation through the Christ who lives in me. And then finally, the resurrection means my future can be secure. You can know your future, and you can be happy about it. You can be excited about it. You can be hopeful about your future because Christ is not dead, but has risen. And one thing we have in common is that we're all going to die. We talked about that a little bit last week. Hopefully, we have a little better understanding of what's going to happen at least instantly when we die. Soul separates from the body. For a believer, soul goes to be present with the Lord in the presence of Jesus, called paradise. And in John 14, we alluded to this a little bit last week, Jesus, of course, is preparing his own disciples for what's going to happen next with him and, by extension, what's going to happen to all people. The first words out of his mouth are both comforting and assuring, let not your hearts be what? Troubled. 
And then it goes on to explain that the reason that they could rest easy, the reason they didn't have to be all nervous and twitchery, and the reason they didn't have to be given over to anxiety as they thought about life's terminal moment uh, was because he had come for that very purpose. He'd come to make a way of escape. He'd come to make a way for them to have a secure future, an eternal home. Something's true for all of us. What was true for them is true for all of us. Christ died and rose again to give us security for our future and to provide for us an eternal home. He looks at his disciples and he says there in John 14, in my father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also Now, just where was Jesus preparing to go? Well, he was preparing to go home to that place that he identified as to the thief on the cross as paradise, what we commonly call heaven. That's where he was going. That's where he is today, engaged in a work of preparation that will become complete upon his second coming. One of the things our risen living Savior is doing is preparing an eternal home for us. I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to be with me. That where I am, there you may be also. And even though we don't have every single detail about what that's going to look like and about how that's going to unfold, what we can know today is that Jesus is alive, and he's not just sitting around taking a nap. He's not passively sitting on a throne. He's actively engaged 24, 7, 365. He's actively engaged in being your heavenly advocate in the presence of God the Father, and he's actively engaged in preparing what will be become, uh, what will become the new heaven and the new earth, our eternal home forever and ever and ever. And the thing about it is, Christ is preparing our eternal home, but it's not automatic for everybody. And it's impossible to get there on your own because heaven's a holy place. And if you're not holy, you'll mess it up when you get there. So if you're not holy, you can't get in. You say, well, pastor, that sure enough leaves me out. I know it leaves me out too because none of us by birth are perfect, which means we're all disqualified for an eternity in a perfect place like heaven. And this is why the Bible says that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is what? Death, not heaven. Death. This is why Jesus said, that maybe makes sense. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because you got to be perfect to go to heaven. You have to be absolutely holy to go to heaven. And we don't come into this world with holiness. We come into this world with depravity, which means we got a problem. That's why we need Jesus. Because when we accept Jesus by faith and we trust Jesus, Jesus moves into our life. And when Jesus moves into our life, He not only brings his presence into our life, he brings his holiness into our life as well. And now we're qualified. 
Not because of anything we bring to the table, but because we simply have Christ. And Christ is always enough. So now we have the certainty with Christ in us of an eternal home. Can't work your way to heaven. Jesus has already done all the necessary work. He's paid the price. All that you and I need to do is trust what he's done for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. Finding heaven means finding and following Jesus, the one who made those outrageous claims about himself, namely, I myself and I alone am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is God's Word, and let all God's people say, Amen.